Good morning again. This, this morning, uh, we are finishing up <clears throat> our series in Philippians. Uh, we've come to the end of the letter, and <clears throat> uh, we're going to be looking at verses 10 through 23, uh, taking you to the end there. So I invite you to open up your copy of God's Word uh, to Philippians 4, 10 through 23. <clears throat> Let's give our careful attention uh, to the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible Word. Paul says this, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Almighty God, we uh, are so thankful for your kindness, your generosity to your people. Uh, apart from anything that we have done, you have showered us with your grace. Uh, and we thank you for that. We thank you especially for uh, faithful men like Paul. Uh, like Epaphroditus and Timothy that we read about in this letter, who faithfully served you on their missionary journeys. We thank you especially for your preservation of this letter uh, and how you feed us by it. Oh Lord, uh, help us by your Spirit to see with fresh eyes what you would have us see uh, today. Uh, may we find our contentment ultimately in you. And Father, as we study this passage, may uh, the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So we've come uh, to the end of this letter. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time, not going to spend much time at all on those last few verses. It's a general, uh, it's a pretty normal way for Paul to end a letter. <clears throat> We've come to the end of it, and as we look at this passage, 
you'll notice that Paul rehearses some themes that have been pretty prominent throughout uh, this letter. In particular, uh, as he begins in verse 10, you see that he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. And so the theme of joy that Penny has mentioned several times as we've gone through this study is prominent, even at the end. And it reminds me of uh, what Paul prayed right in the beginning of his letter when he was praying, always and in every prayer of mine for you, all for you all making my prayer with joy. He was praying for them with joy. And now he's ending his letter with joy. And maybe a less obvious <clears throat> theme uh, makes its uh, uh, you know, shows its head here in this first verse as well. Uh, you recall a couple weeks ago, uh, I was preaching on, the, on chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, and you might remember that there Paul gave an exhortation to think about praiseworthy and excellent things. And when Paul in verse 10 says uh, he, he's thankful and he's joyful that their concern has revived... That word for concern there is really a common term for thinking. And so I can't help but think Paul, having just exhorted them to think about praiseworthy and excellent things, he's now, as an encouraging pastor, going, oh, and by the way, I've already seen the Lord's work in your life in this way, in your concern and your thinking being revived for me. But uh, there, aside from just rehearsing some of uh, the themes that are prominent in this letter, and there are many more that we could do, I think uh, more than anything, this section that we've read this morning is really a carefully construction, constructed expression of Paul's thanks to the Philippians. It's a thank you note that he puts on the end of it. And the problem, however, uh, with thinking of it this way is that to our modern ears, it doesn't quite read like that. You see, Paul doesn't just come out and say, thank you. In fact, as he expresses his thanks, he seems to qualify it quite a bit, doesn't he? In verse 11, he says, essentially, I didn't need the gift. And in verse 17, he says, I'm not seeking a gift. And then to top it off, as he begins verse 10, he has that phrase in there, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length your concern has been revived. It's almost like a subtle rebuke, uh, you know? And so it doesn't surprise me that many have come to this passage and they've looked at it and thought, well, this is kind of a thankless thanks. And the New Testament commentator, Moises Silva, he actually paraphrased it in a pretty funny way uh, if we're disposed to read it that way. He said this. This is what Paul says. I am glad that at long last, after waiting all this time, you finally decided to think about me. <laughs> of course, I realized you were meaning to do it. You just couldn't get around to it. I hope you understand, however, that I don't really need the money. <laughs> My circumstances don't bother me. I've learned to handle all kinds of situations. Nevertheless, 
it's good you decided to send the money. I mean for your sake, uh, not mine. You're the ones that really profit from offering such a, such a gift. Friends, <laughs> this is a funny way to think about it, but it's obviously unfair. It leaves so much of the rich, rich stuff out of this passage, and yet it does kind of beg the question, why does Paul end his letter to the Philippians with such a qualified thanks? If he was indeed thankful, what can we learn about how he, ex he expressed himself in this letter? Well, I think there's a lot for us to learn. And so as we look at verses 10 through 14, there are a couple things I want us to notice right off the bat. You see, yeah, Paul doesn't come out and say thanks, but he does commend the Philippians. You see that in verses 10 and 14. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that you have revived your concern for me. And then he follows that up in verse 14. It was kind of you to share my trouble. And by the way, that little note on, you know, at length your concern has been revived. I don't think Paul is at all giving them a subtle rebuke. I think, I think simply he recognizes that they had for some reason been prevented. And we don't know what that was. It could have been that they were suffering some extreme poverty. It could have been that there wasn't someone until Epaphroditus who stepped up to take the letter. Uh, but at any rate, I think these two verses essentially read uh, as if Paul were saying, brothers and sisters, I'm so thankful that you've finally had the opportunity to demonstrate your concern for me and boy, how you've used it to the fullest. And yet, as he commends them in this way, he does qualify in between those commendations what he's saying. You notice what he says in verse, uh, in verse 11. Uh, he says, well, let, let, me, let me back up. He says essentially that he didn't need it. Did you catch that? Why on earth? Let's think about this and what we know of Paul. Why would Paul say essentially that he doesn't need it? Paul's need was well known throughout the early churches. This is the man who in 1 Corinthians 4 says, to the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly, poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. Paul was clearly in need. And even as he's writing this letter, where is he? He's in prison and he's facing a potential death sentence. And yet, he was also aware of what he had just exhorted the Philippians to do in verses 4 through 7. Remember what he says? He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Do not be anxious about anything. And so I think what Paul's doing here as he's qualifying his words is he's wanting to, he's wanting to avoid misunderstanding. You see, he wants the Philippians to know that his great joy over their gift doesn't mean he's been lacking joy or that he's been anxious about his need. He's been following his own exhortation. He's been rejoicing always, despite his circumstances. 
It's as if he's saying to his Philippian brothers and sisters, I'm so thankful for your gift. It's meant a great deal to me. But I want you to know that my joy doesn't depend on money or food or health. And I think Paul drives this point home that his joy doesn't depend on any of these things by telling them what he's learned about contentment. He says in verse 11, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And friends, that word for content that he used there is interesting. It's unique. It's the only time this word is used in the New Testament. But this word for content was extremely common among the Stoics of Paul's day. And it was used to describe someone as sufficient in himself, self-supporting, strong enough. In fact, uh, Seneca, who was himself a Stoic, Uh, He described the Stoic spirit in this way. He said, a man should be sufficient unto himself for all things and able by the power of his own will to resist the forces of circumstance. And friends, I can't help but think Paul here is intentionally drawing on this word. You see, the Philippians were proud Roman citizens. We've seen that already in our study. And they were well aware, if not influenced, by that stoic philosophy that was present in their day. And I can imagine that as they heard Paul say he'd learned to be content with this particular word, uh, that he'd learned the secret to facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, I can imagine they were thinking to themselves, oh, I see where he's going. You're saying the secret simply to stop wishing for something different and to man up. Sola bootstrappa, right, Paul? But friends, he doesn't say that. Instead, in verse 13, he says this, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Friends, did you catch that? He doesn't say, I can do all things through myself and my own strength. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What a relief those words must have been to those Philippians who were all too aware of their own weakness and perhaps even their repeated failures to find contentment and joy in the midst of life's sorrows. And friends, it wouldn't surprise me if you could have heard a pin drop in the house at this point as they listened to this letter being read. But you know, sometimes I think we apply this very well-known verse, 413, in a way that borders on the miraculous. You know, in Christ we can do all things. As if to say, you know, I can run a four-minute mile without blood, sweat, and tears. Or I can breeze through calculus without cracking a book. Friends, that's not Paul's point. We all know that the Lord has gifted us differently, that he's blessed our circumstances differently. Paul's point here 
is that Christ provides us with the strength to endure all circumstances. That inasmuch as we are found in Christ through faith and recognize that we are not sufficient unto ourselves, Christ has given us and he will continue to give us the strength to endure all circumstances. And you know, it reminds me of what we hear Paul saying when he's pleading for the Lord to remove that thorn of flesh in 2 Corinthians 12. He says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Well, friends, I think this is a profoundly significant message for us to hear. You see, each of us, like Paul, has faced, is facing, or will face a season of want and of physical deprivation. And Paul understood that Satan is all too eager to seize upon these seasons and in them to feed us the lie that our Lord has somehow forgotten us. Perhaps that he's abandoned us in our need. That he no longer firmly holds us in the palm of his hand. And we start to feel <coughs> like the Stoics. That our happiness and contentment is ultimately up to us. And we begin to think, if only. If only I had a better paying job. If only I weren't in such pain. If only. And brothers and sisters, don't misunderstand me. I don't at all want to minimize the reality of the pain that you're facing and the need that you have. But it is a lie to believe that we'd be happy and content in ourselves, apart from the strength that the Lord alone provides to endure these seasons. And did you notice, too, that Paul said he's learned the secret of being content in abundance? You see, Paul recognized, too, that it's just as easy for us in times of plenty and physical health to, again, believe Satan's lies, to believe, like the Stoics, that we're the ones responsible for our success or well-being. And it's easy for us in such seasons to forget that our prosperity is really the result of God's blessing. It's not from our own prowess or self-sufficiency. Friends, Paul understood that we're tempted to find or search for our contentment in ourselves, to embrace a stoic self-sufficiency in both situations, in plenty and in want, and his message here really reminds me of what we hear the prophet Augur pray in Proverbs 38 and 9. He says, Lord, remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who's the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Brothers and sisters, in, this, in these verses here, we see the deeply biblical perspective the Apostle Paul had regarding the real source of our joy 
and contentment. And while I think we do him an injustice if we read this passage cynically uh, as some sort of thankless thanks, we do need to recognize that it's much more than that. Uh, Above all, Paul wanted the Philippians to understand that with or without their gift, his joy in the Lord, his trust that the Lord would give him the strength to endure and find contentment in all circumstances, plenty or want, health or suffering, was unshakable. And friends, we need to learn from his example. When as we look at the the rest of the passage there, uh, you'll notice in verses 15 and 16 uh, that uh, Paul draws the Philippians' attention to a couple of uh, other times when he'd seen them give. And really the Philippians had developed a pattern of giving. You can read about one in particular in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. But even here, uh, in verse 16, you notice Paul says this, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Clearly Paul was thankful and encouraged by the Philippians' generous spirit. And yet, once again, we hear him qualify his words. Look at what he says in verse 17. He says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. You see, in the previous section, he had said, really, I didn't need the gift for my happiness or contentment. And here he's saying, I didn't, I'm not seeking it. Why would he say that? Well, I think in part, he says it because he's wanting to dissuade the Philippians from giving any more. You may think that's a little funny, but the Philippians had a pattern of generosity beyond the other churches. And it's not hard to imagine that as they had received this letter, uh, they might go off and send another gift right away. But I think Paul recognized that they themselves were potentially in need. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 8, he mentions them and he says that their generosity overflowed during a severe test of affliction and during extreme poverty. This was the generous spirit of the Philippians. And so I think Paul here says this out of concern for their own welfare. Almost as if to say, y'all's gifts have been so generous, but you've done more than your fair share. Let some of the other churches carry the load. But you know, I think he also says this because he's eager for the Philippians to know that he's not writing them to benefit financially from them. You see, There were a lot of charlatan philosophers that would roam the streets of cities like Philippi and they would prey on the gullible and they would use their influence to advantage, for selfish gain. In fact, the Roman satirist Lucian, he says that they went around and they sheared the sheep. Paul here is saying that he's not one of them. He's not shearing the sheep his own material advantage. It has nothing to do with what he's doing. Instead, he says, I seek the fruit that increases to your 
credit. He's looking for their benefit. And friends, this is just another way for Paul to say that he was hoping to see evidence of God's gracious work in their lives. And it reminds me of what he prayed in the first chapter in verse 11. He said he was praying that they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And at this point, as he was rehearsing in his mind this pattern of sacrificial giving that he'd seen in the Philippians, I think Paul's pastoral heart overflowed as he saw this fruit in their lives. And we hear him say in verse 18, maybe with a smile on his face, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And friends, it's this last bit uh, that I think teaches us so much about what Christian giving is. Did you notice what he calls the Philippians gift? He says it's a fragrant offering. He says it's an acceptable sacrifice and pleasing to God. Friends, this is temple language. This is language of the Old Testament sacrifice. What Paul's saying here is that the Philippians' financial gifts were acts of worship. It's as if he were saying to the Philippians, brothers and sisters, you've worshipped God in your giving to me. And he's delighted in your sacrifice because it was for his sake and the furtherance of the gospel. And you know what? I'm delighted in it too. I see it as the fruit of righteousness in your life. And this is what I've been seeking all along. Now, friends, I think we need to hear this. You see, I think sometimes it's easy for us to view the work of Paul and even the work of full-time ministers and missionaries today as somehow different. Uh, we, we might see it as particularly sacrificial and spiritual, but we don't view our own support of these endeavors in the same way. But friends, I think Paul explodes this idea in this passage. Uh, our sacrificial giving, including our financial giving, inasmuch as they are done unto the Lord and in the service of his gospel, friends, these are acts of worship. And the Lord is well pleased with them. And let me say something just to our newest members. Uh, my young brothers and sisters, uh, in a passage that is talking so much about giving financially, I recognize that as you look at your bank account, you might think you don't have much to give. But the principle of our giving in sacrifice being, act, being an act of worship applies beyond just our financial giving. You know, and it reminds me of what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 16. He says, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Did you catch that? He says, share what you have. And perhaps the Lord has blessed you uh, with a musical talent. Uh, like we saw with Peter Bowman today, that he has shared with us. Uh, 
Uh, whatever it is, my young brothers and sisters, the Lord calls you to share what you have and to trust, like Paul says in verse 19, that the Lord will supply your every need. And you know, as we come to the close here uh, in this letter, I love that Paul seems to have been so overcome by the thought uh, of the riches of our Lord that he could and would supply our every need for happiness, contentment, even our need for sacrifice and generosity, that he himself bursts into worship and doxology as he closes this letter saying in verse 20, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. And so, brothers and sisters, as we contemplate uh, these words in this passage, as we seek to find our joy and contentment in plenty and in want, in the Lord's strength alone, and as we seek to give sacrificially, offering our time, our talents, and our finances as acts of worship to the Lord, let us do all these things like Paul, with thanksgiving to the Lord for his gracious work in our lives, trusting that he will supply all our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God, uh, we once again bow before you, humble ourselves you creator of heaven and earth we magnify you alone and we ask lord that by your grace we will find our joy our contentment our happiness all these things in you and you alone in the riches of our savior jesus christ now keep us from anything else lord we pray all these things in the mighty name of our savior jesus amen